Hello and welcome back to the Bishop's Office. I caught up with Nathan Laurie a couple of weeks ago to talk about his mission in Japan. Unfortunately, I didn't click record at the time, so this is a second attempt to capture his experiences. Um, so you'll hear me reference that previous conversation. So this time with the record button well and truly pressed, here's my conversation with Nathan. Hey Nathan, it's uh, great to catch up with you and talk about your your mission. How are you this evening? Doing pretty well, thanks. Great. Um, well, why don't you um, kick us off as per usual and let us know where you served and, and when you served. Sure. I served in the Japan South Polar Mission from 2010 to 2012. Awesome. So um, last time we caught up, um, I recall you talking a little bit about um, having, I guess, a sense of duty and, and really feeling like it was the right thing to serve a mission. Where do you think that sense of duty comes from? I think it's a part of my character. From quite early on in my life, I've always been a good kid, done the right thing. But it wasn't until I received my patriarchal blessing that that really kind of crystallized for me. And uh, there's some words in there that explain that that sense of duty is a blessing and will help me to do um, the right thing. And I think since then, that was kind of uh, a bit of an eye opener for me that you know, that is something that's uh, a gift and um, I've been able to rely on it. And yeah, I think particularly it was a strong sense too of feeling so blessed by the gospel and, you know, we know where much is given, much is required as well. I think that perspective is interesting. I've heard sometimes people talk about that sense of duty and feel like it's almost just being like a, uh, a lemming, you know, just going along because... Um, yeah, sure. what they've always done and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's interesting that perspective, seeing it as a as a blessing. Yeah, I um I have a very very strong aversion to following the crowd. I certainly don't like to stick out, but I don't like to do what everyone else is doing just because that's what they're doing. So yeah, it's quite distinct for me. Yeah, cool. Um, so you talked about um in your your teenage years wanting or or needing to find out if the, the church was true and this was this was the right path for you. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that experience? Yeah, um, I had gone to many many uh, seminary classes, many Sundays, and had um, from a very young age always known about the test of the Book of Mormon, the promise of the Book of Mormon, and it wasn't until a Sunday school teacher of mine who may have been my bishop at the time, my memory's not um, too good on that, but um, Brother Clark had one of our lessons and at the end he challenged us to go home, study the Book of Mormon and pray about it. And there wasn't anything um, particularly different about that promise, but for whatever reason that just really stuck in my mind that day. Perhaps, um, you know, a similar thing to what Joseph Smith records about uh, the promise um, of if you lack wisdom, ask of God and it will be given to you. Mm. And so I resolved after that to this time really do something about it. I'm also very good at procrastinating and trying to find out as much about a potential decision and the implications of it to try and de-risk the entire thing as much as possible. Why <laughs> people I'm an engineer. And, and so I went home and I studied 
uh, all the verses I could find about you know how I was supposed to pray, what I was supposed to feel, and even got down to the specifics of you know in Moroni ten three to five it says and if you ask if it is not true I was like well should I be asking if it is true is it not true in the end I had exhausted um, my kind of study uh, avenue and I said right I've just got to do this now and I remember very clearly as such was the spiritual impression but I knelt down on my bed it was a Sunday afternoon I can remember it was blue skies and sunny outside and I started by being appreciative of the gospel and what it had done for me. And then almost as soon as I finished asking the question to Heavenly Father, I felt a very strong, clear, positive uh, response that was undeniably something more than anything that I could have conjured up myself. And that really, uh, I think, set my path. It was clear to me that the gospel was true from that experience and from uh, the many testimonies I'd heard and the effect that I could see in my life and others. Um, and I, you know, from that point on, I think I resolved to serve a mission and so I could share that um, experience and have other people feel the same way. So how old were you when you had this experience? It's a good question. Uh, I'm shocking with time frames and things in the past, but... I suspect maybe 13, 14. Mm, yeah, wonderful. So then this this sort of I'm a good kid, I'll probably serve a mission because it's the right thing to do gets, um, I guess, the additional power of, of really feeling that the Book of Mormon is true and everything that comes along with that knowledge. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Were there um, particular individuals whose examples made you more excited to serve a mission? I think there's probably a couple that come to mind first. One was Dane Granger, and I know you've gone through a, um, a similar exercise with him. I was in his Trek family when he was a relatively recent return mission. He had some pretty cool stories and left a, a strong impression. And another one was from Mount Barker Ward. He also served in Japan. He, um, I remember at an MTC uh, training uh, weekend he shared his experiences of what it was like in Japan I remember that being um, quite impressive well speaking of Japan I think last time we caught up you um, mentioned you had a little bit of an aversion about um, serving a mission in Japan talk to me about um, I guess receiving your mission call how did you feel about that yeah I mentioned before that I don't like doing things because other people are doing them more um, that's just kind of the expectation or the norm and so a bit of background um, for my education and family. So uh, all through primary school, all the way up through high school, up until year 11, I had studied Japanese. And uh, my stepmom is half Japanese and her mum uh, is full Japanese and uh, lived with my dad. And so Japanese culture and uh, you know, that connection had always really been there in my life. I'd been to Japan. Uh, in year 12 and so as is tradition when people um, you know are thinking about how family members going on a mission where do you think they're going to go it was a very common response for people to say oh yeah we think Nathan's going to Japan and I really wanted um, a unique individual mission call that I felt was just for me not because 
you know, anyone else wanted that or thought that. Yeah. Uh, which is very strange when you think about you know, what we know the process is being revelatory. But anyway, that's, that's where I was at. And so I got my mission call, opened it up, and sure enough, there I said, uh, you've been called to serve in the Japan suborder mission. And I had all my family on the phone, and they were all um, quite excited. And um, I think it took me a little while to, to sink in once the phone call finished. But I do remember feeling a little bit disgruntled or maybe a little bit ripped off. That could be a crude way of describing my emotions of the time. There was probably a lot going on. But I remember walking outside of my grandpa's little unit and then feeling quite a strong sense of regret. Like, How could I feel this way about a call from God to go serve amongst the people of Japan? And I think I was, that was a bit of a rebuke by the spirit. And I um, said a prayer right next to my grandpa's lemon tree. I hadn't even walked back to our house and just apologized for uh, such a prideful reaction and just expressed my appreciation for being worthy to take on Christ's name and represent him. Mm. Um, so what was your MTC experience like? It was really fun, um, very challenging, but really really enjoyable i think as an australian in america um you've got um a bit of a, a privileged status you just have to open your mouth and say good day to a few people and um you start to attract some followers <laughs> and that happened quite a bit um to the point where my very very utah uh, companion just got so sick of when people go oh no way that's such a cool accent where are you from he just butt in and be like yeah i'm from Herman, utah <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun and I think the companionship that we formed there not just being assigned as companions but true friendship um, was the main reason that I found that experience just so positive and enjoyable and we've stayed in touch uh, to this day and mm -hmm. we went back to Japan together and we started and finished our missions at the same time I went back there since, and he actually attended my wedding as well uh, here in Adelaide. Look back on that time really fondly with uh, lots of really great memories. So you guys spend, um, what is it, 11, almost 12 weeks in the MTC. And if I recall, they bundle you up onto a bus very early in the morning and ship you off to the Salt Lake City Airport to, to make, way, make your way to Japan. So why don't you tell um, us a little bit about Japan and the Japanese people? What should we know by way of introduction? Yeah, sure. It's, um, I'll caveat it with just my own experience. It's by no way a, um, a true representation, but through the eyes of a very exuberant, uh, hopeful missionary, it, um, it didn't take long for me to be uh, quite disheartened by what I saw as a, uh, a very, very different culture and one that doesn't really value uh, the same church principles that we were um, preaching. Very busy, very steeped in the Buddhist tradition and the man just works such long hours, very rarely home. And so I remember being really dejected thinking, you know, how are we supposed to be sharing this family oriented message when it, it just doesn't seem important to these people? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a very eye-opening uh, experience for me to think and realise that, okay, this isn't going to be as easy and as grand as uh, my MTC naive self had been hoping for. 
So what, what else can you tell me about adjusting to missionary life? I guess there was this cultural shock. How was the, the rest of missionary life treating you in those first few months? It was really rough. It was really, really rough. Um, before I left, there was just some really difficult things going on in my life and within my family. And it was quite a difficult choice to leave that behind. And MTC was kind of a, a protective bubble and things were pretty good, but I still felt uh, pretty upset about um, what I'd left behind. And then when I was hit with the reality of not being able to convey my feelings and emotions to these people and being rejected so frequently and just feeling completely out of depth and with a new companion who I sometimes struggled to really connect with, I just felt really, really out of my depth and can remember waking up quite a few mornings, uh, at least in the first transfer, and just crying and crying and praying and crying and trying to get rid of all of my crying before my companion would kind of come in because I didn't want him to see uh, what was going on. So it was a real struggle. And I had had a lot more opportunity to uh, learn the language more so than a lot of the other people who had been starting at the same time. So I remember thinking, I don't know how these other sisters and elders are doing this. This is really tough. That does sound tough. So what happened for things to start turning around for you? Um, you know, where did the, the light start to come in during this um, really challenging period? That's a good question. I don't think it was um, a singular event or is anything as clear uh, for me as, you know, before when I prayed about, the gospel intently for the first time was kind of very clear um, mm. response. One thing that um, kind of got me through that was the promise in the start of preaching my gospel from the first presidency that says, as you labor among the children of men, greater happiness awaits you than you have ever experienced before. And I remember coming across that and just really latched onto it. That was my lifesaver. And I just clung to that for as long as I could. And then you know, through persisting through uh, those challenges, I began to uh, learn the language better. I began to feel more confident in my skills and abilities and just more comfortable generally with the new routine and, and circumstances and with the grace of God and a lot of spiritual comfort and, and peace that was given to me. I think I just kind of got to the point where I realized that I was actually really enjoying what I was doing. As you reflect back on your mission, are there a couple of teaching experiences that stand out as particularly memorable for any reason? I remember relatively early on, I was conducting a baptism interview for this really lovely lady, and I was not uh, very confident with the language, but she was, she was doing a really good job of uh, being patient and, and working with me. And I remember her expressing some kind of doubt about you know what this would mean for her family and it, it is a really really big challenge for Japanese members to overcome because it, Christianity is such a foreign thing for uh, most of Japan and is seen as a kind of betrayal of the family tradition and tradition is you know, so strongly valued and she wasn't really sure how her mum was going to take it and was a bit anxious about that impact on her family and I was able to explain to her and I'm sure that the spirit conveyed more than my actual words of my experience of how I had seen the gospel bless my family 
while I had been making this sacrifice by doing my best to serve God and promising her the same and just feeling a very strong feeling of, of comfort and reassurance that she certainly felt as well. There were other experiences where I remember just feeling the spirit quite strongly and the other person necessarily, you know, didn't necessarily catch on in the, in the same way. But um, I think every time I was able to testify as a representative of Christ as to the truthfulness of what we were teaching was always a special experience. Another one that comes to mind was in very early on in my mission when I was really struggling to contribute meaningfully to any of the lessons or, or the things we were teaching. I remember coming back relatively late one night and we have a curfew that we have to be back by a certain time. We were out in the country in the middle of nowhere relatively and um, we'd very, very rarely see any foreigners. I think you know, in the four months I was there, we saw two or three. And then on this one night, we saw a guy. And so I just absolutely jumped at the chance to finally express and you know, <laughs> talk to someone. And it was, we say giddy giddy, which is, you know, hit, a bit um, hit and miss as to whether we were going to make our curfew or not. I remember very quickly talking to him and he was from America. I can't remember why he was there, but he had actually met missionaries before and had received a book of Mormon, which I was just so excited about. And then, you know, explained what the book of Mormon meant to me. And he goes, yeah, well, that's great, but I've prayed about it and I just know it's not true. I thought, oh, that's such a, that's the first time I had encountered that mm. um, and just couldn't do anything other than say, well, well, let's just try it again. You know, I'm not sure why you hadn't experienced that, but I, I'm very confident that if you do it again, then it will be a different result. And uh, leading up to this, personally, I had taken it upon myself to restudy the Book of Mormon and to repray and reconfirm that same testimony that I had received you know, quite a few years ago. And I had been fasting and I had prayed and I had studied. And for some reason, you know, this is probably the, the second time round that I was just as intently uh, hoping and yearning for that answer. It just hadn't arrived yet. And so it was a really uh, opportune meeting with this guy. And so I said, look, I'll go home tonight. I will pray and ponder about it and if you do the same we'll meet back tomorrow and we'll talk about our experiences and see what happened and so I went back um, very excited I think we just met uh, our curfew deadline and it's quite a busy time as you get back to the apartment but once that had all settled down I remember kneeling down and praying in this little apartment in a very uh, foreign town and feeling a very strong sense of God's love and his keen awareness of what I was experiencing and, and going through. And uh, again, just a very positive, you know, overwhelming feeling that this was true. And so I was so excited the next day um, to go back and uh, meet up with him, but he ghosted us. I never saw him again. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? So I get the impression that you'd been, you know, not struggling with this question, that's probably over over dramatizing it, but struggling with this this question and, and wanting a reconfirmation for a period of time. There's been fasting, prayer, diligent study, and then it's 
not till you're asking this question in relationship to this man that you've met that you you get this reconfirmation and then he's yeah. not there the next day yeah really, really interesting yeah the, the, i think any spiritual experience is always very very interesting to try and understand the why and how it all fits in mm. um but I, I definitely think that when we are seeking revelation for the benefit of someone else there's something about that that opens our hearts and minds to a witness of the spirit or revelation in ways that seeking it for ourselves just doesn't really do at least that's been my experience yeah it's a good lesson how did your relationship with the savior change during your your two years in japan i went out as a missionary understanding who jesus christ was and what role he played but i remember getting to a point maybe six or seven months in maybe a, a bit later and just kind of reflecting on my role as his representative and who i was teaching uh, him to be to all these people who had, you know maybe only heard the name only and i remember recognizing that my closeness and the quality of relationship with christ who i was always teaching others about wasn't what i wanted it to be i wanted it um, to be much more heartfelt rather than just a academic uh, approach and so i resolved to study uh, jesus of the christ by james e talmage it's a very very thick discourse on his entire life and was part of the standard uh, missionary library at the time mm. and so i studied for weeks you know hours and hours with the intent of understanding christ more and having a more personal connection to him and particularly to the atonement my understanding of the atonement at that point was relatively shallow and knew it to be you know this force for good in terms of people stuffing up and then being able to repent and, and be forgiven but didn't understand how it how it works on a day-to-day -day level and so I, I read most of it and we're talking hundreds of pages um, and I remember finishing the chapter uh, that concluded his atonement uh, and his crucifixion and I remember at the end just this outpouring of uh, the spirit that confirmed to me that Christ was not just the son of God the creator of the world you know the savior of mankind but my savior someone who you know rather than just this big grand uh, god-like fi figure was a very personable close being with the, an intimate connection to what i was doing and from then on it was a really a really big blessing that i felt to be able to then uh, represent him and to be able to testify in his name i remember it was one of the things that i found the hardest after coming home was losing that mantle and um, not being able to represent him in the same way before we move to post-mission life and coming home are there any other experiences i guess from your your time in japan that you feel to share with us at this time i think one of the the unique things and you you asked about the culture before um 
one of the very unique things about my mission that I didn't understand at the time, but I think compared to others' experiences I've learnt uh, post my mission, was that um, we never really ever had to worry about disobedience or uh, people going, missionaries going off the rails. In the entire two and a bit years or a bit less uh, that I was there, uh, we didn't have one person get sent home for disobedience. The major uh, concern uh, for us was always just the mental health and well-being of the missionaries because it was such a, a difficult, sometimes grueling experience. And so I learnt a fair bit about mental health and kind of the need for balance. And it was something that I got wrong and ran myself into the ground, got myself really quite sick. And it took a little while for that to, to kind of settle out. I pursued with dogged determination the goal of finishing my mission with no regrets. That's what I wrote on the front of my planner. And I wanted to be absolutely exhausted, spent with nothing left to give. And while that helped me in many ways, in many other ways, you know, it really inhibited my ability to be an effective missionary. And I think if I had my chance again, I would spend less time trying to cram as much into the day and more time trying to be as centred and kind of mindful in terms of you know, the, the worldly terms for it, but as closely connected to the spirit as I could and leaving room for the spirit to operate in my mind because I think that uh, certainly is a more effective way of going about it. Mm, no, great lesson. Last time we caught up, you shared with me a, a few experiences related to the temple in Subportal. Do you mind covering that off with, with us again? Yeah, yeah, sure. When I first received my missionary call, um, a temple had already been announced for uh, uh, Subportal. Previously, uh, the people of the island of Hokkaido would have to catch a flight um, to uh, the next island down and visit the Tokyo temple. And they've been doing that for many years and they were very faithful in that. Um, and even though Hokkaido doesn't really have a huge amount of members, um, you know, it's probably similar to Adelaide, I think their faith was certainly rewarded and a temple was announced. While I was there, my first mission president uh, finished up and he decided to uh, invite all of the missionaries kind of close to the city uh, and in the metropolitan area around it to the site of the temple, which by that time had been uh, earmarked and purchased, but no works had commenced and it hadn't been dedicated. And so the last time I saw my mission president was at um, the farewell kind of uh, fireside meeting held on those grounds. And that was a very memorable, uh, emotional time and um, to commemorate that I found what was the only flower on the entire site and I kept it and then uh, laminated it and put it in my journal and committed to return back when the temple one day was going to be built. I was also very fortunate um, to be there for the groundbreaking ceremony which happened quite some time after that and it was on a day that was probably in autumn and uh, just for some background, winter in Hokkaido is very extreme. The island uh, to the northwest, the, the tip there is 
the closest to Russia, and historically that sea has actually frozen over and temperatures can get uh, to, on the northern part of the island down to minus 20, minus 25, even 30. We had one missionary suffer frostbite. And so even autumn can be um, quite uh, difficult. There wasn't uh, any snow at the time, but it did rain that day. And generally the, the church uh, membership is the demographic is relatively senior. And so there were hundreds of uh, members sitting out on this uh, open field with this rain coming down on a very, very cold day. It had to be single digit temperature and you know, probably around five or four degrees. And the ceremony, I think, was probably close to two hours. And it was remarkable to me. The members hadn't really prepared to you know, be soaked to the bone, but not one member left the entire time. And that was just a, a really impressive mm. demonstration of the members' faith and determination to be a part of that historic moment. And it's very typical of uh, Japanese members, I learnt, because the cultural and social barriers are so great, it does mean that becoming a member is much more difficult. But at the same time, once they have overcome that, they're so much stronger for it. And members in Japan are just absolutely wonderful, really committed, really lovely, very, very charitable people. Mm. Um, so that was really special. And I got to uh, take a photo with one of the shovels and turn over the uh, soil and came home. And then uh, a few years after the temple finally was built and uh, finished and they announced the dedication uh, for it. It was to happen in a couple of sessions. And my last companion um, who was from California, his uncle happened to be one of the area 70 who was assigned uh, to visit the Saporok Temple and participate in its dedication. Mm. Um, but he, he had received tickets for himself and the rest of his family, but the rest of his family weren't going. And so he knew his uh, nephew had served there and, and would be interested. So he said, look, you know, if you have any companions or friends that you'd like to invite, please feel free to pass on these tickets. And so my companion, who's Elder Wilson, and reached out to me and said, hey, I've actually got uh, a ticket for you if you want to sit in uh, the dedication ceremony, which was just you know, more than I could have ever hoped for. And so uh, I went across to Japan. I organized to catch up with my original MTC companion. That was the first and only missionary reunion I've been to. And then I remember um, on the day of the uh, dedication, just seeing the temple to start with was really, really amazing. It has a great presence on the site. And I remember walking past a big long line of these really faithful members who had waited so long for this temple and they weren't, uh, there just wasn't enough room in the celestial room to let them in. So they were just watching it on screens before, you know, outside or they were in the, the hall watching on TV. And I, I felt kind of um, that, I wasn't worthy of this experience. You know, they were much more deserving of it, but we ended up sitting right on the front row, but it was just a really special moment to see that full kind of story of being there for the first official church meeting on that land and to being there at the groundbreaking to then being there for the dedication. Mm. Um, Did you take the flower back? 
I did, and I've got a great photo of me with this uh, pressed, laminated, crudely cut out uh, flower in front of the temple. <laughs> what kind of flower was it? Was a was it a sakura blossom or what was the story? No, no, it wasn't anything. I think it's just a weed, to be honest. <laughs> it's a sour salve. <laughs> <laughs> the equivalent of yeah, it was quite <laughs> anymore. Um, but the, the temple ended up playing a, a really big uh, role in my life. The next day, went back with a couple of my companions who had uh, been able to make it uh, to Japan at the same time. And we decided to go through uh, and do an endowment session. And at this time, I had been seriously considering whether or not to marry Cassie, who is my wife, which is the, the spoiler. And it was something that I had um, really struggled with to, to find the confidence to ask you know, quite a similar story probably to the first time around of asking about the Book of Mormon. I was doing everything I could to ponder and figure it out in my mind beforehand and kind of figure out all these things. And then we went through the endowment session and we were in the celestial room just kind of discussing as ex-companions about how amazing this experience was and how cool it was that we were now there all together. And then I had a bit of time for myself uh, at the end. And I just remember feeling very relaxed and at peace and found the confidence to kind of push past the anxious thoughts and the trepidation I'd felt about it before. And in quite a simple uh, prayer, just asked Heavenly Father whether my decision to get married to Cassie was the right thing and just feeling a, a calm, reassuring feeling that, yep, it was, the, you know, it was okay by Heavenly Father. And so specifically the support of Temple has really played a big role in my life. It's um, highlighted my mission and, and certainly has set up my life afterwards. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's a, it's a great story. And, um, you know, as I was reflecting on it, you know, those words from the Book of Mormon, tender mercies, um, mm. are what sort of come to mind, you know, um, that it was so, like one might say serendipitous, right? It was, it was amazing luck that you had the opportunity to go back and to have those tickets and to be a part of that and to have, you know, your prayers answered in that way. Um, but we, we know a bit better than that, don't we? Um, it's, it's not luck. It's, it's a loving Heavenly Father that um, crafts these experiences that we need. Yeah. And another experience you mentioned before, you know, were there any other experience you wanted to share during mission that um, is very much in line with what we were just talking about? Um, and it was one of the more impactful for me. I was very fortunate to serve uh, almost entirely within the one zone throughout all the different uh, transfers, uh, which covered a really big geographical area, uh, probably not dissimilar to uh, Fell Stake where, you know, you've got uh, different states. And I remember towards the end of my mission, uh, I was right down south at the lowest point of the island and we had an overnight bus trip to go back uh, to state conference. And I remember sitting there during state conference and being able to look out over the congregation and seeing faces of people that I had taught and members that had been so kind and, and thoughtful when I was just an early missionary really struggling who, you know, after my first talk said, you know, what a, great talk you you've done so well when it was just gibberish um, <laughs> and I remember just feeling this again this you know I was overwhelmed at the time but just realizing how Heavenly Father had guided me completely unbeknownst to, to me 
and it, it just felt like everything kind of fit into place in a, in a way that was more than what's just the human inclination to try and find meaning between points in the past. Mm. It was almost like, you know, my spiritual eyes were open and I could see how Heavenly Father had, had guided me when at so many times throughout my mission, I just felt kind of meandering and not really sure of if I was doing the right thing or not. Uh, so that was a really precious experience as well. Um, maybe to draw our conversation to to a close, um, towards the beginning of our little chat, you talked about that challenging time at the beginning of your mission and you taking hold of that phrase in the beginning of um, Preach My Gospel around finding greater happiness as you serve um, among the children of men. Was that promise fulfilled for you? Yeah, absolutely. The difficulty of putting it all on the line every day and going outside of your comfort zone and facing up to your fears never went away. It was always difficult, but I was really schooled in what happiness really means. And I remember reflecting um, in my last week, you know, we would write emails every week to our family. And I remember thinking about the greatest lessons I had learned as a missionary. And by far the greatest one was what true happiness means and what it comes from. And for me, that was being able to live each day according to your own principles and beliefs and doing the best that you could, completely irrelevant of any external circumstance factor or effect. And so as I really kind of, as that lesson distilled in me and I uh, kind of practiced that, I really found a lot of joy and happiness in what I was doing to the point where I remember thinking that, I want to do this forever and I could be very happy doing this all the time. It's certainly not to say that everything was easy. You know, there were lots of peaks and troughs throughout all of that, but yeah, definitely. I remember thinking, yeah, I have, re- have you know, been blessed to realize that promise. Well, Nathan, thanks for taking the time to talk about your mission. It's particularly sweet for me, having served in Japan also, to hear about your experiences, many of which I, I shared. Appreciate you being so open and, and sharing your, your feelings and experiences with us. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nathan about his mission. I love the way he's able to see the Lord's hand during his missionary service and throughout his life. That's all I have for you today. Until we speak again on The Bishop's Office.